Hola. Hola, Charlito. Charlito. Hola, Charlie. Char. Hey, Charlie. Okay, Charlie. Is your name Charles? It's Charlie, not Charles. What's up, everyone? This is Charlie, not Charles, and this is the first episode of what I hope to be one of many. I understand that you could have been anywhere in the world, but you are here with me. I appreciate you all. Before we start, just a brief introduction of myself. I am a native New Yorker. I was raised in Harlem to Dominican parents in the 80s. I spent some time in Buffalo, New York for school. I came back to New York, attended law school, and I'm currently practicing law as an attorney. I'm also a part-time professor at a university and a writer, and now a podcaster. Well, why podcast? Well, I've always loved the spoken word. I've always been an avid listener of lyrics, loved a good dialogue, this quest for truth, and I've always shared a deep admiration for irony. A top reason for me, though, is that I've always appreciated the art form from the shadows. I've always felt intimidated by the vulnerability of it all and plagued by an aching desire to be perfect. But most importantly, I'm existential as all hell. And convincing myself that I can share something of real value on some days is a difficult task. Plus, I told you, I was raised in the 80s, I was raised to Dominican immigrant parents. I was raised in the fast-paced streets of Harlem. So the pressure to produce was always far more encouraged than staying put and asking questions about anything that didn't immediately result in paper to hand. However, during this COVID-19 pandemic, we in New York City and the rest of the state were forced to shut down for a few months in isolation. And as time froze and I grew tired of pacing back and forth between my living room and the kitchen, I determined I would be more amused if I just sat down and sifted through my own thought fog uh, with a, a sense of wanting to connect more with humanity. What came out of it was this podcast. So this podcast is simply an invitation to you to join me in this journey. We will discuss all different types of things and invite interesting people as guests to share their perspectives. Today's segment is called Father's Day, and it's only fitting because today is Father's Day. And on a day like this, I remember mine. I was six when he passed away due to lung cancer, but I would argue I was still raised by him. I was raised by my own memories of him, by other folks' memories of him, and the dots I've connected along the way. Now, this doesn't mean that I've never acknowledged a deficit that I was working with as a result of his physical absence. A story that comes to mind to help me illustrate this point uh, was an article that I read in the New York Times. I believe it was written by George Vexy in 2013. And this article involved the well-known baseball player Alex Rodriguez, uh, who was also known to many as A-Rod. And um, prior to his baseball retirement, 
prior to marrying J-Lo and giving his brand a huge makeover, he was known for big contracts, for becoming a Yankee. Uh, I recall a steroid scandal, and also for rumors of not getting along with his teammate and Yankee star, but now retired uh, Derek Jeter during their play together. Now, Vexy and many other writers wrote about A-Rod in the beginning of his career, or wrote about him uh, in the beginning of his career, and A-Rod would consistently mention, according to them, the absence of his father and how that absence, uh, particularly in his childhood, played a major role in the way he identified himself. A-Rod's dad, just to give you some backstory, A-Rod's dad left the family when he was nine years old. And this made him angry and sad, and he grew up working very hard to try and win his father's approval. You know, so I, I recall Vexy specifically comparing Jeter to A-Rod in dealing with the steroid scandal, for example. Uh, Jeter, whose father was a drug counselor and a positive and a constant figure in his life, uh, always pressed upon Jeter the importance of knowing what was right from wrong, right? But most interestingly, he encouraged Jeter to always work harder than anyone else and to never get too down on himself. Um, I recall reading that he emphasized staying positive even when things weren't going his way. Um, and in an interview that Jeter did, he specifically referenced uh, that his father called him every day when he went through a batting slump in 2004, I believe. That having a positive figure in his life allowed him to stay out of drug scandals and become a better clutch performer, um, in which the writers wrote he was a better clutch performer than A-Rod. You know, but something that struck out was that he was very keen on talking about the confidence that he had in his own you know, decisions. And I'm talking about Jeter here. Um, you know, and this brought me back to an episode that I also saw of a superstar, um, Michael Jordan. Um, I saw an episode of The Last Dance, I believe it was episode seven or eight, um, and uh, The Last Dance is pretty much a film about the last season of the legendary Chicago Bulls, right? The last season that they, that they won that championship, their sixth championship. And episode seven or eight showed a young Michael Jordan like making a decision to not only retire in his prime, this was his first retirement, right? Because he retired twice, but also retired to then play baseball. So the world was going crazy. It was going nuts. I was going nuts. I remember I, I shed a tear when I heard it in the Dominican Republic. I used to go to, to, to the Dominican Republic every summer. And when I heard about that, I was like, man, this is crazy. You know, my favorite player retiring, you know? And, but Jordan, in an interview when he retired, said that he felt comfortable with this decision because he had talked it over with his father and, um, Therefore, he was affirmed that retiring from basketball to play baseball was a decision he had made and he was confident about. He didn't need to seek approval from the outside world and definitely not from me, right? So now let's go from Michael Jordan who decides, who decided to retire in his prime and was confident about his decision, right? 
to A-Rod and how he was known by many in Seattle, which is the first city that he played for as a major leaguer. Um, he was described by many writers as a shortstop with power who worked very hard and innately understood the game, but not the game of life, right? Ouch. One writer specifically wrote that he went from earnest to clueless with no warning light, always on the outside of whatever side there was. Damn, that sentence struck me because at times I feel I was A-Rod. You know, I, I too spent most of my childhood without my father. Prior to going to college, I didn't even realize the disadvantages of not having a father around. And the truth is I never asked myself this question. You know, I grew up with a superstar mother who was strong and independent, uh, who never let me get too down on myself, uh, which gave me strength, right? But also steered me away from delving deeper, I guess, into the effects of my father's absence. Only now that I think in retrospect and understand the deficit that I was working with and, you know, to be honest, what I'm still working with. But when I was in college, I had this roommate who would call his father for anything, and I mean anything. Dad, how do you do this? Dad, I need financial help this month. Dad, there was this weird noise in my car. What do you think it is? Dad, I'm trying to impress this girl. What should I do? Now, I'm not saying he didn't question um, his mother or didn't have questions for his mother as well, right? But I, I did notice he was getting information from two people as opposed to one. And in my case, my mother was a single widow. Uh, she was working two jobs and almost always overwhelmed due to her responsibilities and to the fact that there was no other person to change shifts with. So she can gather herself and maybe find perspective on her own to share with my sister and I, uh, but most importantly with herself, right? You know, um, her self-care. Like she needed time for all of that in which I felt that she really didn't have to give us the best version of herself, right? But, so I noticed that I was having many uncomfortable experiences that my roommate would easily brush off. For example, being on a first date, catching a flat, not knowing what the hell to do. Or having the confidence to make mistakes on a, on a general level, having the confidence to make mistakes because your support system was more intact, you know? You got your mother and your father that pretty much have your back, not just your overwhelmed mother. There were many bits of information about life that my roommate knew about that I was totally clueless about, you know? Um, but I understand now that my roommate was also lucky because he had a, not only a father, but a father who took a positive role in his life, which then leads me to think about another interesting nuance. Obviously, the benefits of having a positive father figure in one's life far surpasses uh, not having a father figure at all, right? But does not having a father figure at all surpasses the benefits, if any, of having a toxic father figure in your life? You know, as we, as we know, there are many levels of toxic behavior. It can range from 
an overprotective parent to a child abuser or uh, an abuser of another parent, right? So I wonder, do toxic fathers do more damage than absent fathers? So according to this research that I pulled up, uh, 13, 2013 study out of, and I'm sure I'm making a mockery of this name, Niederhain University in Germany. And um, they pretty much say that all children need the same things. That no matter their race, their gender, or socioeconomic background, um, they all had four basic fundamental needs that when met sufficiently, uh, assisted them in becoming healthy, confident, and well-adjusted adults. So there were pretty much four fundamental needs, right? Uh, one being orientation and control, uh, the second being pleasure, gain, and distress, third being attachment, and the fourth was self-esteem protection. So the orientation control, starting with that one, uh, pretty much centered on our understanding of our surroundings and the ability to affect them, right? This need is crucial for our psyche. Um, for example, when an infant begins to cry, right? And that act is a direct communication to adults. One that determining how it's answered leaves a long-lasting uh, imprint on the child. So whether the desired goal is a bottle of milk or a dry diaper, um, the child assesses the situation. And um, you know they discover a need, and uh, that determines the most effective way to bring attention to the need and have it addressed, right? But, but the baby identifies with a sense of control in all this by putting into like a motion of set events that will address that need. So when a parent addresses that need, uh, there is a state of what? Congruence, right? And congruence occurs when our understanding of the environment aligns with our goals, um, which studies say that that is an essential char characteristic of a healthy adult, right? So that's one thing when thinking about whether your parent, pro your toxic parent at least provided you that, right? Um, the second fundamental need is what the study calls pleasure, gain, and distress avoidance. And this process helps the child decipher what is good from bad and how the child learns from that, right? Um, so how does the child not learn from that or learns from that? By not being in a stressful environment because then that distorts the child's perception of what is good and what is bad because the environment is hostile to learning, right? It's like expecting a teenager to learn in those public schools, those New York City public schools in the 80s, the ones that shut down, you know, it wasn't going to happen, right? So now you have this child um, who develops a repertoire of behaviors that align uh, with an approaching good and safe things and avoiding painful or dangerous things, um, then that baby or that infant or that child uh, gains the ability to decipher between displeasure, pain, and, de and, and delayed pleasure, right? So now they're able to say, okay, if I do this, this will happen. If I do that, that will happen. But in a hostile environment, 
you can't decipher that, you know? So apologize if I'm being redundant. So their ability to focus on setting goals leads to positive results as opposed to immediate results. A key component to self-control and self-discipline, which is a major characteristic, an essential characteristic of a healthy adult, right? And then you have the third basic need, which is attachment. And um, here, some psychotherapists refer to it as um, the centerpiece of our neurobiology, right? And um, this comes into play when our parents or caregivers either satisfy our need for healthy human contact or leave us seeking fulfillment elsewhere, right? So the back and forth affection of the child to the parent is crucial in uh, developing an establishing sense of pendability and stability, right? Um, so when the child feels supported and protected in their exploration of the world and relationships, um, this is quite interesting, right? This is called, this is a part of that basic need of attachment because it gives them a foundation. They feel protected. Um, you know, this is quite interesting for me because my mother was always on survival mode as a single widow mother, right? Until this day, she can't seem to shake the fast pace of needing to produce or accumulate for a, a cloudy day, right? Yet, she still managed to provide that emotional, physical attention, right, that I, that I also needed. But this emotional uh, attention came in the form of urging me to act, right? It, but not to explore, right? Um, and so what I knew of my father was quite the opposite. He wrote a lot on his time off and lived a life that gave him like a unique perspective of the world around him. So growing up in an upper middle class family in the DR, he was also provided with a quality education and then a promising career in the DR that gave him access to leisure and traveling. And um, I think this is something that I probably would have missed in his absence. You know, I think to myself whether the fear of taking risks with my creativity or relationships or business ventures stem from that deficit, right? Um, instead of heavily relying on one parent who was already overwhelmed, if my father was around, you know, I, I probably would have had a deeper perspective, right? Now, the fourth and the last need that the study talks about is the self-esteem protection, uh, which would occur when children receive appropriate praise and positive feedback. Now, this allows them to form, according to the study, a healthy opinion of themselves and encourages them to focus on their positive performances as opposed to harboring onto like negative things that they cannot change. But most importantly, it teaches children to be their own advocates when their character is questioned and affirms them in their decision making, even when uh, that decision is made against the grain, right? Such as the Jordan decision, right? Or the decision to be positive despite you being in a slump, uh, the disposition that was shared by, by Derek Jeter and Derek Jeter's father, right? Um, so when our valuation of self is devoid of external influence, there's less risk that we suffer the toxicity of people's opinions of us, right? So let's play around with the scenario that I was either 
born into the care of a toxic parent or an absent parent, right? As an infant, I started to cry, and a toxic parent then responds with either anger or frustration, or simply not at all. Let's say that this parent repetitively uh, modeled shitty, dangerous behavior um, and poor decision making. And as a child uh, normalizes it because the child doesn't know any better, and now the child has this dysfunctional way to approach pain and displeasure in the way that aligns with his or her needs, right? It's like witnessing your father you know, drink champagne for the pain, right? Now it's completely normal for you to do the same when you're dealing with your own pain. But imagine I grew up thinking extracting affection from a parent is like pulling teeth uh, because the parent is emotionally available, unavailable, right? Erratic or inconsistent. I never feel that secure attachment. And that follows me into adulthood because now I find it completely normal to try and extract affection from an emotionally unavailable, you know, inconsistent uh, partner, spouse, or friend, right? So to go back to my question before we went on this gallino chase, right? And uh, by the way, gallino is Spanish for rooster, you know, keep up. Also, if you speak Spanish, it instantly makes you more interesting. Just my two cents. Um, the study then suggests that toxic parents and absent parents are one and the same, that neither equips the child with the necessary tools to tackle adulthood um, with any preparedness, right? So the children inherit the work that the parents don't do, pretty much. So in my situation, my father's absence was due to death. And let me be clear, like the need for approval may or may not resonate with me in the same way it would resonate with someone who had a living absent parent. I'm sure there is a whole abandonment thing going on there. My best friend was pretty adamant about this unique pain that he suffered that came from having an absent parent who was still alive, but yet, you know, was nowhere to be found, right? Um, thus, I am no way comparing my pain to theirs. Um, so I just wanted to put that out there. But my feelings about my father and his wants and desires aside, right, um, I asked myself if he would have been alive, could he have been described as a toxic parent? Um, so based on what I know of him, he wasn't a toxic parent to my other siblings, but most importantly, my memories of him were not toxic. Now, he wasn't perfect. Uh, you know, no person is, right? He did drink from time to time. He did show me a Playboy magazine that one time when he was drinking. Uh, I think I was barely five years old, right? I do remember him getting a lecture from my mom when I outed him out. Um, I remember that there were issues of infidelity in his prior relationships, right? But not to condone, not to justify, but you know, in retrospect, it was also a different generation, right? Um, but questions do linger, um, which would shed some light as to whether our friendship would have evolved into something that was healthy, right? Would he admit to me 
uh, you know, matters of the heart, right? Would he dispel some of the, the cheating rumors in his prior relationship? Would he have kept it real with me, his son, right? A son that resembled him, that was known also to be competitive, but also very loving, and wasn't afraid to cry, all right? They say I'm his twin in his looks and demeanor, but most importantly, in contradiction, right? My question is, would he have offered me an alternative guide to life? How would his presence shifted the access of my world? Now, according to the stories that I've heard of him, he was loving, he was industrious, uh, quite the wordsmith, and, um, but easily tempted. And when I say temptations, again, I mean women and later alcohol, right? So the question is, what would he have taught me? Just to push it a bit further, would he have defended these toxic views um, that were held by most men of his generation? Or would he have provided me with evolved insights that um, came as a result of lessons in self-reflection? I will never know, right? Would he have had expectations and criticisms of me? Would I have lost many years of life simply trying to please him, right? Burdened by his critical eye? Or would his well-known lightheartedness have the opposite effect in freeing me, uh, not only from my own self-conscious, but from other people's expectations? Right? So, you know, again, I think he was capable of being a healthy parent. And I'm confident that I would have benefited tremendously from his presence. And, um, and aside from that, I would have liked to see his own ambitions, desires, realized um, by living a longer life. You know, he only passed away in his early, early to mid-60s. Uh, still relatively young. Right? So he transitioned, and I would imagine it was against his will, since few people surrounded by so much life and love would want to die. Again, I'm not, you know, I'm talking, this is my opinion. But, but then lies a deeper question, right? Could he have prevented his death? Could he have eaten a bit better, not waited too late to get proper medical attention? Was it the drinking? Was it the smoking? Why did he choose to keep drinking or smoking even after being diagnosed with lung cancer, right? These are the questions that I ask myself. Could he have prevented his death? Okay, so let's say to the contrary of what I just said about my belief that my father could have turned out to be a healthy parent going forward. Let's say, let's imagine if my father did have toxic characteristic traits. Would we be satisfied in knowing whether he was a toxic parent or not if we would just see it from the point of whether my basic needs were met? Or should we consider and to what extent who this person was from a holistic view? I would have asked him what was his trials and tribulations? How was he raised? What made him tick? Did he believe in God? 
Did it matter if he believed in God? Whether he found himself in existential waters like I occasionally do. Did he carve out time to try to turn on the lights in the dark corners of his mind? And if so, was that darkness too much to bear? And did he pick up drinking as a result of that darkness? You know, was it the stable industrial life that he left behind in the Dominican Republic that he missed? Or was it the second class status treatment that he received when he first migrated to the New York? Did his brown complexion or the fact that he couldn't fully grasp the English language at the age of 59 discourage him in this new land? And did he use the alcohol to numb the angst, the confusion, the yearning of wanting to see his parents again? And for that reason, I would have always chosen him to meet and discuss all of these things. You know, they say when two people meet, energy begins to flow between them. That they experience this emotion of fraternity, right? And that this flow is unrestricted, unrestricted because these parties do not initially judge each other. And as a child, why would you and how could you? You wouldn't know any better. So this brings me to this idea of radical forgiveness uh, described by author Colin C. Tipping in his book, Radical Forgiveness, Making Room for a Miracle. And um, this is just for us to be able to imagine this perspective, right? And some of us are ready for it. Some of us may be ready for it at some point or another. Um, some of us will never be ready for it, right? But this writer uh, forces the reader to understand that judgment is the ego's application of value or merit to whatever we are looking at, whatever we are discerning at the time, right? Now bear with me. Consider, consider the thinking that this type of thinking is fatally flawed as everything else in the universe is a manifestation of source, right? That is fundamental to experiencing the physical universe that nothing is ever really separate from anything else, and that in essence, everything is of equal validity and value. In layman's terms, my father's flaws, or what some judge as toxic, could actually bring me closer to the human universal experience. How is that possible? Well, what you see the flaws that you see in your father, you will also see in the universal world. So this is just a representation of the world at large. And there is an opportunity for some teaching and therefore healing to happen. Again, it's not called radical forgiveness for no reason. It's radical, right? Um, so thus, instead of the energy flowing freely between two people in a relationship, this begins to spiral back in and on itself in order to heal this disharmony. So again, you're, you're learning from this disharmony. Uh, you know, Jay-Z once said, you, never, you can never heal what you don't reveal. And this is an opportunity to heal. I've heard someone say, tell me what my triggers are and I'll tell you where I am not free. 
right? So I know it's radical, but it is a concept worth exploring, especially if you did experience trauma from a toxic parent and uh, you wish to heal these shadow aspects of your psyche. At its essence, radical forgiveness is about reminding ourselves that we are not really separate from the physical world. And as such, we are entirely responsible for the circumstances that we find ourselves in. Again, it's a radical thought, but I think it does help with a lot of healing. I've practiced it in my life, and I've seen benefits from it. But radical forgiveness, again, is the perspective of this universal truth that our ego victim stories are revealed to be nonsense, right? And that once you are reminded of this truth, the victim story collapses. And that all of these lessons are necessary for our spiritual growth. Uh, The writer um, goes on to say that those that don't accept these truths find much pain and suffering in the world, right? Um, I read somewhere this quote, where holding grudges is like drinking poison and expecting that other person to die from it, right? So again, this is more with a focus towards healing. Um, Some may be ready for it, others may not be. Um, But I think this is a concept worth exploring. Um, I would like to end off with one memory of my father. I remember I was five or so there was this one morning that I was overwhelmed with joy because I had found out that my father was taking me to the daycare that morning. Um, and as we were walking, I, re- I remember the hill was steep en route to the daycare. I turned around and with a wide smile um, and in my five-year-old voice, uh, told him that he should take me to school all the time. I remember he looked at me uh, in the eyes for a second, but it felt like it was long enough to feel the seasons change, and they did. He went from a bright smile to turning around and sobbing as if he were holding this painful secret. So today I would ask him, what were these words that couldn't quite escape him? Did his five-year-old's jumbled-up words translate to a thousand love yous? Or was it that he knew how sick he was and the thought of not being able to continue in sharing these moments, in these small but significant moments, too much to process? Well, I think he did know, and those tears never left me. I sometimes wonder what my father's death prepared me for. I wish I had a library filled with his books or journal entries, but I don't. And for now, the memories will have to do. I find it fitting to talk about my dad, not only because today is Father's Day, but also because today, June 21st, marks 32 years since his passing. So happy Father's Day, Sergio Vargas. Happy Father's Day to all the fathers out there, even those that are simply trying to figure it out. We are all works in progress, we just gotta do the work. So I hope many of you that are committed to doing this work find triumph 
through the motivational force of love and make up for that past. Thank you for listening to my first episode. Look out for the second one where we will be discussing what is the new normal post-pandemic, post-George Floyd, post-Brianna Taylor, post-massive protests. Let's get into it. Peace and love. Paz y amor. Talk soon.